Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Friday, January 12th. Today, it's Friday and time for another conversation about Colorado's literary scene. This week, Sunwriter Kevin Simpson talks with an archaeologist and former Denver Museum curator who has written a book about one particular aspect of human evolution, our tendency to accumulate stuff. Before we begin, join ACG Denver's Rocky Mountain Corporate Growth Conference on February 12th to 13th as the middle market business community comes together to discuss trending issues and the latest investment strategies. Make new connections and partner with experts at the Hyatt Regency Denver for two days of networking and learning opportunities that will help you prepare for 2024 and beyond. Register at acg.org events. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. In the 1970s, the oil shale boom promised economic growth and population expansion in Colorado, reminiscent of its historical gold rushes and wartime prosperity. This boom inspired ABC to create Dynasty, a soap opera rivaling CBS's smash hit, Dallas. It premiered on this date in 1981 and helped introduce much of America to the centennial state. Set against a backdrop of Colorado's oil fields and skylines, the show focused on the wealthy family, the Carringtons, led by tycoon Blake Carrington and his new wife, Christy. The series gained fame for its extravagant plots, including feuds, scheming ex-wives, and outlandish scenes, epitomized by a notorious Lily Pond catfight. Dynasty featured a star-studded cast and guest appearances by celebrities and politicians over its nine seasons. Before we continue, the Colorado Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing, HCPF, is raising awareness of the invaluable roles of direct care workers and the direct care workforce in Colorado. Direct care workers play a crucial role in enhancing the lives of individuals requiring assistance due to disability, age, or illness. Learn more about the impact of these workers and how to become one by visiting hcpf.colorado.gov slash direct-care-spotlight. Next, our feature story. Hey there, and happy Friday, Colorado. Well, the holidays are behind us, and if Santa and all your gift-giving friends were good to you, uh, you're probably starting the year with an ever-increasing amount of stuff. So if this sounds familiar, you're in luck, because today we're talking to a guy who literally wrote the book on how our species made the leap from having nothing to needing everything, and in ever greater quantities, it seems. We're happy, we're happy to be joined by Chip Colwell, archaeologist and former curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, now editor-in-chief of Sapiens, a digital magazine covering anthropology. And most recently, he's the author of So Much Stuff, How Humans Discovered Tools, Invented Meaning, and Made More of Everything. Welcome and belated happy 2024, Chip. Great. Thanks so much, Kevin. Appreciate the conversation. So I should mention uh, right off the bat that we're thrilled to be running an excerpt from your book in our Sunlit feature this Sunday, and that a few years ago, uh, as a matter of fact, we featured your previous book, Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits, which was a fascinating exploration of the misappropriation of native artifacts that's still an important issue today. But tell us how so much stuff came into being. The book started with a really simple question that my sister asked me some years ago. 
uh, I was visiting her in Seattle and she asked the question, why do I have so much stuff? And, you know, I looked around her house and it looked like, you know, when she asked the question and it looked like kind of any other modern house with, you know, carpets and wall hangings and uh, couches and, you know, and it suddenly struck me with that question of just how much stuff fills our world. And as an archaeologist, someone who'd spent at that point a couple decades studying the material culture, the stuff of humanity, I felt like I should have a kind of ready answer for her. You know, how did we get to this point? Because I knew that our species, if you went far enough back, three, four, five million years ago, they didn't need any tools at all to survive. You know, just their bodies alone would allow them and the, this to survive and the species propagate. So what was that story that took us from nothing to everything? You know, how exactly did we go from the species that didn't need any tools to survive to a world in which we need, you know, couches and wall hangings and eyeglasses and computers and whoopee cushions and Italian villas and nuclear weapons, right? <laughs> we live in this world of just hyperabundance of stuff. So what was that story? And I didn't have an answer. So I set out to find out what the answer was. And, and so that brings me to the next question about how you approach this as an archaeologist. Uh, did this research sort of dovetail with what you'd done before at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, or, or was this something entirely different? It was, it was a bit of a brave new world for me. You know, as a museum curator, curator at DMNS, um, we often focus on the individual object. You know, you're looking at a specific culture, a specific place, a specific time. And instead, I wanted to look at all of it. You know, I wanted to look at the whole collection, the hundreds of thousands of objects that we had at the museum, um, the millions of objects that we have in our lives, to understand this, this kind of symphony of material culture, to understand what was, what was the story at the biggest level. So this is a very big history, which was brand new for me. Um, and it took me all across the globe. It took me to a lot of unexpected places. I also realized pretty quickly that while, uh, you know, as an archaeologist, I was going to tell the story from things themselves. You know, what do things, what do objects have to tell us? I also needed to delve into other kinds of uh, fields. So I bring in psychology, evolutionary history, uh, even business and sociology and psychology. And so, you know, it ended up being this kind of vast exploration. Uh, not only around the world, but across all these different ologies. And so uh, you're basically looking at like a three million year timeline, a uh, pretty, pretty big chunk there. But you narrow the key changes down to three big leaps that our species has made. Tell us about those and the impact that each of them had. So after traveling all over, you know, reading really widely meeting lots of people, talking to lots of people. I actually did a lot of interviews with, with scientists and scholars all over the world um, on these topics. I tried to wrangle this big history by constructing three major leaps that our species undertook over the course of three million years. And the very first leap was the realization that you could actually break apart stones and use them as tools, use them as ways to cut things, uh, especially cut meat, uh, to cut tough tubers, to process food. And this was a magnificent discovery because it, 
it was the opening vista to our world of stuff because without realizing that you can actually use you know, the natural materials of the world to make tools, you don't get tools. So it was this revelation that our ancestors had. And this occurred about 3.4 million years ago in East Africa. That's the earliest evidence that we have for these stone tools um, by our Australopithecine ancestors. And this was a major transformation of actually our species too, because as you begin to use these tools, the body itself responds to this co-evolution. And so for very concre concretely, what that means, for example, is that if you can use a stone tool to cut apart meat before you begin eating it, you no longer need really sharp teeth or really strong jaws because the tool is doing that work for you biologically. Huh. So this launched a kind of co-evolution between tools and us as a species, as our own, our own biology as it developed. So within a million years or so, you actually begin to see really dramatic changes in the human body. And this is in direct response to the discovery of tools. So that's the very first leap is the discovery of tools and this co-evolution. Uh, some scholars call it techno-organic evolution, uh, this symbiotic relationship between tools and our species biology. Then somewhere along the line, our ancestors began to realize that these are more than just things, um, that these things actually can have symbolic meaning, that they have a kind of uh, additional value besides their most immediate use. So you begin to see, for example, etchings on stone tools. You begin on um, etchings on stones, uh, zigzags and other kinds of designs. Uh, you see etchings, uh, for example, on a shell in Indonesia about 500,000 years ago made by our species, our, our cousin species, Homo erectus. So about a half million years ago, you begin to see the emergence of tools as having meaning. Um, this is really the birthplace of art. It's the birthplace of religion. And it's the birthplace of value, what ends up being money. So the second big leap, uh, which begins about 500,000 years ago, is firmly in place by 50,000 years ago, is the invention of meaning. And then the third big leap happens about 500 years ago. So we need to fast forward way into more recent history, and you begin to see globalization and the industrial revolutions um, starting to unfold. And with this third and final leap, we begin industrial production um, that's going to be a lot more familiar to a lot of our readers. But not only do we have the ability to produce more, to produce abundance, but we also have the creation of an ideology of abundance. So this is, you know, an important part of the story because with our modern world, it's not just about the ability to be consumers, but it's the belief that being a consumer is a really good thing and that only by being a consumer can we lead a good life. So the kind of third and final stage that we're currently in is really abundance, but especially the ideology of abundance. So let's tease your upcoming excerpt uh, a little bit here. But believe it or not, folks, there's a strong Colorado connection to all this. It seems like there always is. Uh, tell, tell our listeners what you learned about in Boulder, of all places. Yeah, I mean, a really fun part of this book project was 
finding local stories too. You know, I'm here in Denver still, um, love being a Coloradan. And so I looked in our own backyard and I ended up going to a local landfill. You know, I did a lot of work in the museum here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And then um, there's this really amazing, amazing story um, that I came across and wanted to tell in the book about um, a construction crew who was working in Boulder, um, not too far from campus there in 2008. And they were doing some landscaping work. And when one of the workers uh, put a shovel to the earth and a kind of uh, hole opened up about the, about the size of a uh, shoebox. And so, of course, he got down to explore it and he pulled out uh, what turned what turned out to be 83 stone tools. So these are, you know, think about kind of like arrowhead type tools, um, different kinds of cutting tools, raw material. And, you know, he thought, oh, these are maybe, you know, it's kind of interesting, maybe a couple hundred years old. Well, they call a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder named Douglas Bamforth. He comes out and he's blown away. Like this is a major discovery. It turns out that these objects, mostly um, tools, were sitting there for about 13,000 years. Holy cow. 13,000 years. And so um, this is what archaeologists would call a cache. Um, it's a kind of storage uh, approach to storage, to, to keeping these um, artifacts um, in place. Doug thinks that someone, you know, these are really precious, beautiful stone tools um, this raw material was collected across Wyoming and Colorado. They would have been really valuable 13,000 years ago. Someone probably hid them or put them aside, planning to come back to them at some point, and something happened and they never came back. And so they sat there for 13,000 years. But this is a really important, um, amazing discovery right in our own backyard. But it also points to this practice of caching and hoarding which we see in really extreme ways, you know, in our species and our modern world today, too. Yeah, well, my wife and I have gotten quite good at that, actually. Our <laughs> crawl space will attest. But, you know, another thing I found fascinating in the excerpt was that humans aren't the only species to preserve their stuff. I, I found that fascinating. So who are we imitating or which, or which species are imitating us? Biologists would argue that there is a deep-seated instinct around hoarding. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because if you are, say, a squirrel and you know that winter is going to come and there aren't going to be a lot of, of food items available for you, it makes sense to uh, expend a lot of energy to store food for those hard times. At the same time, animals need to balance that because if you spend all of your time just storing ahead for the future, you may not survive today. So there's this, always this kind of push and this push and pull in animal instincts um, for animals that have this to hoard, but not hoard too much, uh, because hoarding itself can be dangerous. And you know we see hoarding in an amazing array of animals, uh, mammals and birds. There's I discovered through this research a, a beautiful, amazing bird species called the acorn woodpecker that uh, essentially creates these little cubby holes hundreds and hundreds of cubby holes and trees and other kinds of um, wood, uh, like in water tanks or other places where there's a lot of wood. And they create a little cubby hole and then store an individual acorn 
in all of these hundreds of holes and they tend to them almost as children or, you know, someone going to the pantry, checking on, you know, all the food that's there. Um, so this is a really uh, deep seated instinct. We also see in some of our uh, closer primate cousins, uh, chimpanzees, for example, macaques, uh, those animals that act, those primates that actually use stone tools or uh, straw tools, they actually curate those and reuse them over and over. So we do see even this this kind of hoarding and reuse technology um, with tool use with our primate ancestors and primate cousins as well. Yeah, that, that seems especially interesting to me. I mean, we can all sort of understand hoarding food, but to do tools too, that's like a kind of next level, right? It is, yeah. I mean, there there's a kind of sophistication, right? Intellectual sophistication that's needed to understand how precious tools are to be able to do that. Um, but it also speaks to the uh, the recognition in those species of just how useful the tools are for their survival, and that is very likely what would have happened with our ancestral ancestral species, uh, you know, hominid species, two, three, four million years ago. So I love when writers, uh, whether they're researching fiction or nonfiction, uh, find ways to leverage that research to travel the world. And you alluded to that earlier. Tell us a little more about exactly where your research took you and were you able to experience things in those places that you never would have otherwise? Yeah, because I wanted to tell a global story, a story of all of us, of humanity, um, and going back very deep in time. I was really fortunate to be able to go to a lot of amazing places and, uh, you know, experience a lot of this, uh, you know, humanity story up close and personal. Uh, one of my favorite places to go was Ethiopia. And there I went to the National Museum and met uh, a, uh, the archaeologist uh, who actually discovered the very first evidence of the oldest stone tool use ever. Um, so, and then I was able to hold that evidence in my hands. Um, so um, Zure Almasad discovered a, um, a bone that had cut marks in it, and it dated to 3.4 million years ago, um, and it was found in Ethiopia. And it was almost like this delicate little piano key, this kind of white, hard white uh, bone that that had these simple little cuts. And yet, you know, you're just transported back millions of years ago to the moment when some ancient ancestor figured out that stone tools could help them eat better, you know, and that's really the spark that began it all for us. Um, that is the first cut. So, you know, I went there. I also went to Hong Kong to study the origins of religious objects. I went to New Zealand and was able to study Maori, uh, the indigenous people's use of traditional items there. Um, and then I, uh, again, looked in our own backyard and went to uh, landfill and went to museum collections. Um, so it really became this, this um, amazing opportunity to travel the world to tell this big human story. So I, I'm curious what what uh, the reaction was when you met these people, whether it's, you know, the scientist who made this first initial discovery or, or the guy at the landfill, when, when you say, well, I'm working on this book about stuff, I, I'm guessing there would be a real 
some sort of connection there. Everybody can sort of relate to this. <laughs> That's really true. You know, it's um, it's the book has opened up a lot of doors because I think so many people understand intuitively um, how much we depend on things, you know, to make our lives what they are. And I mean that in terms of, you know, whether it's our car to go places, uh, but I also mean in terms of whether it's like an heirloom, right? That's really precious to you, that maybe connects you to a grandparent. Uh, maybe it's a beautiful piece of art and you've always, you know, been in wonder how it is our species thinks a thing can be beautiful and wants to collect it and wants to possess it, right? We're all connected to our material world in really intimate daily ways. And it's, psychologically, it's physically, it's socially, right? We're, we're connected to all of these things. And there just have been very few books that I, that I think really take that big picture and try to unpack it and explain, you know, that 3 million story, that 3 million year story. And then also ask, you know, where are we going from here? So going back to your, your three major leaps that that you described earlier, uh, are, are we now as a society, sort of uh, stuck in this current stage of this ideology of abundance, or do you anticipate that there there could be a fourth major shift looming? I mean, can we as a, a species uh, adapt and change to needing less, or is that ship sort of sailed? You know, one thing I wanted to be really clear about in the book is that by leaps, I don't necessarily mean leaps forward, right? This is not a <laughs> teleological. Des, you know, our destiny is written and we were meant three million years ago to end up where we are today. You know, leaps can be to the side and leaps can even be backwards, right? So where we ended up today doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for us or for our planet. And certainly because of our industrial abundance and the ideology of abund- abundance, this, this, this global consumerism, that is really engulfing so many societies. We're really on the brink, on the precipice of some really hazardous um, consequences for ourselves and our planet. You know, if you can look at, for example, the amount of waste, the amount of physical waste that's anticipated, that's projected to go into landfills, is uh, estimated to double by from now until 2050. And so where are we going to put put all of this, right? We know that our oceans, for example, are drowning in plastics and other kinds of waste. Um, you know, there's one story I talk about in the book in which um, a lot of our so-called fast fashion, a lot of the clothing items that we're buying in abundance end up in places like Ghana. And there's no um, modern uh, landfill system in order to take care of all those items that aren't sold. And so you have millions and millions of clothing items that are just littered across uh, the beaches and across communities there. So we're really in a dangerous place. Um, as much as I think kind of the overconsumption is for our own psychology, that it's not always the best thing to just think that happiness, it means buying more and more and more. So I do think that we as a species need to look hard at our history so that we can understand how we got here but also that we don't have to be here. That in the same way, there were certain very particular choices that led us to where we are now. We can make different choices to move us where we need to be in the future. And I suggest in the book that this needs to happen at a personal level, you know, the kinds of choices that we make. 
But just as importantly, if not even more importantly, we need to make bigger changes at policy level, uh, society-wide um, decision-making. So for me, that's the fourth leap is a serious reconsideration, a serious reevaluation of this stage of abundance that we're currently in so that we can reimagine what it means to live with stuff. Well, fascinating stuff. And before we let you go, are there any local events where our listeners might be able to catch up with you as you, uh, you know, advance your book? Yes, I would love to see everyone uh, listening to the podcast at uh, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science on January 25th at 7 p.m. Uh, there will be a uh, conversation between myself and the local journalist, Helen Thorpe. Um, and we're going to talk about stuff and there'll be a book signing. Uh, so that's DMNS, uh, January uh, 25th at 7 p.m. And I hear tickets are going fast. So so check that out uh, as soon as you can if you're interested. Absolutely. Well, we've been talking with Chip Colwell, author of So Much Stuff, and it's available at fine bookstores everywhere. And just a reminder that we've got that excerpt we talked about, plus an interesting Q&A with Chip, coming up in Sunlit this Sunday. Thanks so much for joining us, Chip. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. Two Netherland residents are now official guardians of Boulder Creek, responsible for giving voice to a waterway that is in demand and under siege. Netherland's elected board of trustees passed a resolution in early January appointing the guardians to fulfill a rights of nature measure passed in 2021. Conservation advocates and backers in Colorado nonprofit groups are joining the international rights of nature movement, sometimes called personhood for rivers. They say natural areas deserve a defender when developers or government policy threaten the watershed's health. The guardianship applies only to the part of the creek that runs through the former mining town. Governor Jared Polis on Thursday delivered his 2024 State of the State Address at the Colorado Capitol. He used the speech to share his policy priorities for the lawmaking term that began Wednesday, highlighting the need for affordable housing and public transit, and new protections to safeguard the environment and clean water and air. Polis also made pop culture references, joked about his interest in running for president, and talked about improving political discourse. The Colorado Sun fact-checked the governor's 57-minute speech. See details at coloradosun.com. Avalanche forecasters are sounding the alarm, warning backcountry travelers in Colorado that new snow piling on top of weak layers will spike the risk of large slides this holiday weekend. Snow started falling in the mountains Wednesday, with a daily flow of storms forecast through Monday. Several feet of new snow will fall across the state's high country Friday and Saturday, compounding the avalanche hazards as blown snow builds dangerous slabs. There have been no avalanche fatalities so far this season, and authorities are trying to keep it that way. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Before we go, we encourage you to check out a new podcast from our friends at KUNC called The Colorado Dream. Here's a sneak peek. The new season of The Colorado Dream explores the Black immigrant experience in Aurora. It's told through the eyes of one African woman. I would sit on the beach and just daydream about coming to America. And the city of Aurora that's working to become an inclusive home for all. In the last 20 years, uh, we have a new face of the city. I'm Stephanie Daniel. Join me for the Colorado Dream Newcomers Welcome. You can find the series at KUNC.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, a quick message from our editor. 
I'm Larry Rickman, editor and co-founder of The Colorado Sun. The Sun is a public benefit corporation, and we rely on the support of listeners and readers like you to produce the nonpartisan, in-depth news that Colorado needs and deserves. Please consider becoming a Sun member for just $5 a month. Learn more at coloradosun.com. Thanks.